Hey everybody, it's Doug Schaefer back with a new episode of The Taste. Thanks for joining us. This looks like our last one for 2020 and I'm very excited about our guest today. But before we roll into all that, I want to let you know that we're planning an upcoming episode that's a little different. We want to do an episode that's all questions from you about the world of wine. So please send any questions to podcast at schaefervineyards.com about how we grow grapes, how we make wine, thoughts on how long to age your wine, Again, that's podcast at schafervineyards.com. There are no dumb questions, and I'll try to answer as many of them as possible. Okay, today on the podcast, we have a guy who's got a pretty interesting perspective on the world of wine. He's not a winemaker. He's not a grape grower. He's a member of the wine media who has seen it all for 25 years. I can't wait to talk to him, so let's get going. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of The Taste. This is Doug Schaefer, and uh, we've got a special guest today, Thomas Matthews, executive editor of The Wine Spectator. Uh, I first met Tom, I don't know which wine experience, but one of them through the years, and it was always great to see Tom during the wine experience because if you haven't been to one of these things, it's a crazy three or four days. There's a million things going on. There's all this crazy, busy activity. And then I'd, then I'd run into Tom somewhere, and he was always cool, calm, and we'd, we'd have a moment. We'd have a really wonderful, intelligent, yet short exchange, but it was always very almost zen-like, Tom. And I got to tell you, I've, I've Love seeing you at those times and I always thought, God, I'd really like to sit down and have lunch with this guy and talk to him more. So we finally have a chance today. So thanks for coming on. Well, thank you for uh, having me, Doug. And I well remember your appearances at the Wine Experience, both pouring at the booth. The Schaefer booth was always mobbed with well-wishers and aficionados. And then when you and your dad poured that amazing vertical tasting for our thousand guests, and it really showed the world what Napa Valley Cabernet can do and what great people you were. So to me, the wine experience was about the wines, sure, of course, but really it was about the people, uh, the presenters and the guests. And being part of that world was always a high point of my year. Super. No, it was a lot of fun. Um, but before we get in, into that and to your story, um, you're executive editor of The Wine Spectator. You've been doing it since 1999. You've been with The Spectator since 88. I'm, I'm betting a lot of people like me don't know exactly what that involves being executive editor. What's it, what's it like? What's your, what do you do? Well, I spend most days going out for lunch at fancy restaurants with great vintners, drinking old bottles, and having a blast. <laughs> Come on. There's got to be more than that. Well, there's a, little, there's a little more than that. I would say my job is to be the defender and uh, nurturer of brand Wine Spectator. Okay. My job is to make sure that what goes in the magazine and what goes up on the website and what happens at our events is what our readers are looking for so that they will keep loyal to us and um, we can keep growing our audience and teaching people about the great world of wine. So there's the three or four parts to that. I mean, I'm a, we're built on tastings and I'm a taster, I'm tasting the wines of Spain for the last 30 years. Uh, we're also a magazine of stories, so I'm a writer and editor and really read and edit almost everything that goes either on the website or in the magazine. 
And then there's the managing part. We have 40 people on our staff between New York City and Napa, and uh, that's a lot of moving parts. So I have to keep everybody happy and working hard. (laughs) And then the most challenging part, I would say, is Marvin. Marvin Shankin, who owns Wine Spectator and M. Shankin Communications, our parent company, uh, is a visionary and uh, extremely demanding, extremely uh, adventurous, and not that patient. So I'm sort of the hinge between Marvin and the publication, the hinge between the idea and the reality. I have to I have to take his ideas and turn them into the wine spectator. And that has been a great adventure over the last 30 years. Wow. I can imagine it because I, I don't know Marvin well, but I know him well enough. And he is a ball of fire. I mean, the guy is moving 100 miles an hour all the time. You can see that the wheels are just turning. So, man, you've got your hands full. And... Well, you mentioned that Zen personality. I think Marvin would be the first to agree that that has been a good match. You know, he brings the fire, and I bring the cool rain from time to time. Well, cool rain, but also one of your earlier comments when you start answering this question, I, I flashed on brand because you said, you know, I, I touch everything about this this organization and this publication and this website, and you keep an eye on it and basically you protect that brand which is the wine spectator and that's um that's so important that someone's got that ball and is carrying it all the time that is the biggest challenge and my greatest satisfaction i feel that um through all the ups and downs we have maintained our integrity and uh, have increased our expertise and as a result of that we have built our audience people trust us and I take that with a great deal of pride and, and respect and gratitude. Well, hats off to you, man, because you guys have stayed current and stayed on top for you know, over 30 years, which we're going to talk about a little later today. But before we do that, let's talk about you. Tell me, tell me where you were born. Take me all the way back. Parents, siblings, childhood. Give me the uh, Reader's Digest version. Okay. Well, I was born in 1953 in Flint, Michigan. My father was from Virginia, a chemist who was working for DuPont Chemical Company. My mother grew up in Wilmington. She was a uh, church music specialist. And like so many families in the 60s, ours foundered and broke up. And so I spent third grade in Belgium with my mother and father. Okay. Fourth grade in Michigan with my father. Fifth grade in Delaware with my mother and sixth grade in Vermont with my mother and new stepfather. Oh, man. Three or four it, years in a row, just like that. It, it uh, you know, it gave me a tolerance for insecurity and a taste for adventure, and I think it sort of set me up to be something of a risk taker, which I think has served me well uh, in the later career path. So I went to Bennington College in Vermont, a small liberal arts college, student-centered, studied a lot of different things, wound up as a social science major because I was kind of thinking about law school and uh, wound up in graduate school in political science at Yale and really discovered in a hurry that academia was not my path in life. 
<laughs> well, how's that work when you're at Yale getting through that? I mean, if well, you, uh, <laughs> I don't put any of the blame on Yale. They did what they do, and they did it very well, but it just was not right for me. So I dropped out and saved some money working for a year and said, you know what? I don't like working either. <laughs> so, I love it. So I said, okay, I don't like school, and I don't like working. What's left? I said, how about travel? Okay. I'll travel. So I said, so I saved some money and I moved to Spain to write a, a novel in 1978. I had Ernest Hemingway in my sights and that was my path. Okay. So after about a year, I lived in Granada. I decided that I was going to find an apartment that had a view of the Alhambra, the great Moorish Spanish palace from the Renaissance. And I did. And every night I had a glass of sherry and watched the sunset on the Alhambra. And every day I got up and worked on my novel. And after a year, I had drunk a lot of sherry. <laughs> I finished I finished the novel, and I ran out of money. Oh, I love that. And I, and I said, now what? I said, I, the novel's not very good. I, I, I don't know what's going to happen with that, but I have to earn some money. So a friend said, let's go to Bordeaux and pick grapes. This was September 1979. And I said, well, I said, well, why would we do that? He said, well, for three reasons. He said, the, uh, the food is great. They give you all the wine you want to drink, and the work is easy. So I said, well, okay, sign me up. Well, Doug, guess which one was a lie? I know, because I've tried to pick grapes myself, and it's no fun. <laughs> it's a lot of work. <laughs> I still have scars on my fingers. Oh, Oh, you, it's horrible. You cut your fingers, and then the great the, the juice gets in. It yeah. stings like all get out. Oh man, yeah, yeah. But I'm sure, like you, I just I was I landed up in a small family property in Ante de Mer outside Bordeaux. Okay. And I just fell in love with the wine world. Huh. So that's when it mm-hmm. happened. Yeah, because I was going to ask you. I was going to ask you earlier. I'm interrupting. I apologize. But was there when growing up was there wine in the in the house? Is, is that happening? Uh, you know. Yes and no. Okay. I mean, we had sherry time with Gallo Cream Sherry. Uh, We occasionally had some sparkling wine, that label I can't remember. But the wine memory that I, earliest wine memory that I have was from Belgium. After church, we would go, a group of families, to a restaurant uh, for, to get together. And this restaurant had a rotisserie where they cooked chickens and uh, serve french fries with that. And then there were these carafes of red wine on the table. And hmm. it was just a wonderful moment. Every day, week, I would look forward to this. The kids would run around, scrap over the french fries. <laughs> the adults would sit at the tables and drink the wine and laugh and talk. And that really stuck with me as something, a life that I liked. Huh. I've recently learned that that restaurant still exists. In fact, it was it has its roots in the 17th century. It's called De Oeuf. Oh, wow. The Hoof. And uh, I wrote about this in a column I wrote in the October 31 issue. And a reader from Belgium wrote me and said, that restaurant is great. I go there every week. When you come to Belgium, we're going to go together. <laughs> that's so cool. Can you believe it? That's great. And that's when, that's when it clicked for you. That even, well, though, even though you didn't know it was clicking, that was the, the, that yeah. great memory. Well, we had the same thing in, during the grape harvest. You know, every day after the picking was done, we'd all sit around the table and the, the wife, the vintner's wife, would bring out platters of roast chicken and French fries and there'd be carafes of red wine on the table and everybody would laugh and talk. Oh, 
That's so romantic, except for the picking grapes part. <laughs> yeah. So I decided, okay, I want to get into wine, but I'm not going to be a grape picker. Okay. I'm not going to, so I'm not going to do the physical work. <laughs> so how'd you do maybe that? Maybe I can write yeah. about it. Okay. I thought, maybe I can write about it. But then, you know, I had to learn how to, I had to learn about wine and I had to learn how to write about wine. So I spent four years in New York as a bartender and wine buyer at a couple of restaurants there. And this was 82 to 86, 82, which was 86. an interesting time to yeah. be in the wine industry, just kind of taking off really. Right. Uh, consumers, kind of middle-class consumers getting into wine in a serious way. The Bordeaux Futures of 82, you know, the California, the, the Judgment of Paris with that. So, and the restaurants were kind of trendy. Uh, right. So every wine salesman was dying to be on the list. So I got to taste a lot. So when you were a bartender, you became a wine buyer? How'd that work out? The guy who was buying the wines quit the job and I said, I'll do that. And they said, well, how, why, how, you can't do that. I said, sure I can. I pick grapes. I know about wine. And I said, I'll do it for no more money. They said, all right, it's yours. So that's how you became a wine buyer. That's I So I got to ask you a question. So were you buying, since you love Spain, I'm, and you write about Spanish wines today and have for a long time, I'm assuming you were into Spanish wines then. Yes? No. Mm, not so much, Doug. I mean, okay. really in the 80s, Spanish wine was not happening. Got it. Okay. But And this was a French bistro, and uh, so we were mostly a French wine list, but California was happening. And uh, I remember uh, Kistler, I mean, not Kistler, but Sonoma Crutera right. hit the market. And I could not keep that in stock. I just kept pouring the, pouring the Chardonnay. It was like a house wine, you know. And yeah. it, so I thought, wow, something's going on here. I had Burgess, I had uh, Insignia at the high end. I was one of the first buyers of Opus One. I bought the mixed pack of 79 and 80. Oh, wow, I remember that. Okay. Yeah. Wow. So, you know, and I sold a lot of Beaujolais Nouveau and uh, a lot of, you know, Saint-Emilion with the steak frites. Yeah. Well, I remember, because um, in the mid-80s, I was here in the cellar and dad was doing all the sales and marketing and whatnot. But I remember um, New York for us was really tough because yeah. even though California was happening, it was still very, very Eurocentric um, with wines yeah. and, and rightfully so. And so California was just busting in and we were a total no name. And I remember, I think it took him three years to get a distributor to take, to take us on New York. It took, you know, in yeah. the late, in the mid eighties. And then he finally did. And, um, and that's, you know, started slowly, but it was tough um, those days for the Californians getting. But, you know, we, our wines, you know, in all honesty, I don't think overall our wines were, you know, good enough across the board to make that imprint. And I, fortunately, that's happened since then, which is great. But, uh, you know, you know you this is another digression, Doug, but now that I've tasted more widely and, and learned a little bit more, I feel like. In some ways, the cream of the crop in Napa in the 60s was maybe a high point that didn't get reached again until possibly the 90s. Interesting. Because that, that this... whole turbulence of the 70s, including, you know, your family and right. so many families, you know, you all had to get started. You had to learn. You had to plant. You had to grow. You had to, you know, it takes a while. And I, I think those 68s, 
you know, that was really weren't matched until we got into the... Well, Lance. right, because the guys in the late 60s were like um, Martini, Engelnook, who some of the mm-hmm. other ones, that would been, they'd been making wine for a long time. They'd figured it out. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's a really... In style, Maya Kamas. Right, right. Yeah, because we just, we had to, you know, put our training wheels on and, you know, fall over a few times and skin our knees more than once or twice, which we did, and you learn yeah. from it. But, yeah, there's that... There's that um, number of years until you kind of figure it out never thought about that way i do know right that now. i've had a couple of 68 martini cabs are just fabulous elias has a stash of it and it's just like oh mm. my god they're beautiful wines just yeah. amazing all right so you're so you're a wine buyer um so then let me step back yeah. one minute before yeah. i also thought okay maybe i can be an importer that oh. sounds like fun i'll go to the wineries <laughs> You know, I'll just bring in the wines I love and, you know, people will buy them because I love them and they're great and that would be great. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> on one prospecting trip, I was in Paris, this is 1980, and crashing with a friend and he said, I'm going to a party, you want to come? So I said, sure. And it turned out to be a 21st birthday party for a young woman from Georgia studying abroad named Sarah Williams. And... I was not going to leave that party until I had a, a, a date with that girl. Wow. And I was the last person to leave the party. Did and I think she agreed to see me the next day because she thought I was so drunk that I'd never even remember the address. <laughs> <laughs> but I remembered the address. Oh, man. And I found her. And, you know, now we're married 35 years. Wow. I was going to ask you about Sarah and how you met her. Thanks for telling me. That's, that's so romantic. I love it. That's super. So she was bold enough to move with me to New York City in 82, and she was very successful. She had trained as an architect, and she was working in interior design and facilities management, and she was making way more money than I was as a bartender. But, you know, I wasn't happy being a bartender, and she wasn't happy going into an office every day, and we said, you know what? Let's go back to France. Let's just quit everything and go back to France. So in the fall of 86, that's what we did. We moved back to Bordeaux. And uh, we decided we were going to write a book about a sm- life in a small wine village and see if we couldn't make a living as freelancers. Tom, I, mean, I just never knew you were such a crazy guy doing all this stuff. This is wonderful. Okay, continue. So you're in France writing a, writing a book. And freezing to death because we're <laughs> in this old stone presbytery that didn't have any heat and wasn't normally rented in the winter, but they made an exception for us and gave us a rent we could afford, but we couldn't afford to heat it. And I mean, Sarah said, I've got these things on my hands and they're all swollen and they hurt. And this woman in the store says, they're angelure, what is that? So we looked up in the dictionary, she had chillblains. (laughs) I said, chillblains? People in Dickens novels get (laughs) chillblains. That's not now. (laughs) Oh. Oh, man. You know, we honed our crafts. And uh, I remember I wrote to Wine Spectator. uh, And I said, I'm living in Bordeaux. I I can write about Bordeaux. I I know a lot about Bordeaux. You know, what do you need? And they wrote back and they said, well, you know, we we cover Bordeaux pretty thoroughly. We don't need anything. But thank you. Oh, "Oh, shoot. (laughs) Now what? (laughs) Well, oh. I just kept insisting and insisting, and finally they said, okay, here's a, here's a story. You can do a story. And I wrote a story about Chateau Sudriro, which is in Sauterne, great right. sweet wine producer, which had a wine school attached, like a satellite 
from the university. And uh, they published a little story with a photo by Sarah, and that was our entree, 1987, in the Wine Spectator. How cool. So, yeah, I was curious about how it started out. So you were basically hired on just to do an article here, an article there, like a freelance thing? Okay. And, you know, Doug, at the same time I was writing about architecture for Progressive Architecture magazine, I mean, they were giving me much better assignments, and they paid better, too. Mm -hmm. And if, if Progressive Architecture had wanted a Paris bureau chief... You know, maybe we wouldn't have be having this conversation. Wow. Interesting. But instead, Mar- a wine spectator wanted a staffer in their London office to work with James Suckling. And uh, James said, why don't you apply? Huh. So I thought, well, I, I finished the re- research for the book, really. We don't, we're broke. We've never lived in London. Might be fun. I'll write the book. You know, it'll be a big success. I'll go on and write another book, and I'll have a nice two or three years, you know, with Wine Spectator. And then I met Marvin, and Marvin was like, wow, this guy, he's got, he's got a vision. <laughs> he's, got, he's got energy. He said, I, you know, he, he, said, he totally sold me that the Wine Spectator was going to be hugely successful in the future. So fortunately for me, he offered me the job. We moved to London, and uh, we spent a year and a half there. And that was, yeah, 88, 89. Wow. Okay. So I love it. Let's back up a little bit because I'm I'm curious. And I think a lot of people are, who don't know the background because, um, but how the Wine Spectator started and then how Marvin got involved and how he has taken it, you know, over, I don't know, 30 or 40 years to what it is today and maintained it. Because I do remember the beginning, it was a, it was a newspaper thing, right? I'm back. Marvin tells this story much better than I can, but it was founded in 1976 in San Diego by a former PR guy named Robert Morrissey, who felt like there was a thirst for news and views about the wine industry. So he started this little bi-weekly newsprint thing. He gave it away free. He, you know, he, he, and Marvin immediately had, Marvin had started his publishing career. He left Wall Street to begin a publisher with Impact, a spirits newsletter okay. in 1972. And he was always plugged in and he saw this wine specter and he fell in love with it. So he became a sort of a pen pal with Morrissey. And Morrissey had no business experience or publishing experience and he really, he didn't know how to make it work. And Marvin kept helping him and helping him. And finally, Morrissey said, Marvin, I can't do it. Huh. it I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fold the publication. Marvin said, you cannot fold the publication. <laughs> America needs this publication. And Morrissey said, well, you have to take it then. Marvin said, no, I can't take it. I'm barely making my own ends meet. He said, well, if you don't take it, it's going to die. So Marvin said, okay, I'll take it. And he bought it. Wow. And that was in 1979. And... Uh, he really had this vision that America was becoming interested in wine in a way that he could help. And by God, he did. Well, and you know, I, Doug, I look at Wine Spectator and Napa as kind of uh, brothers from another mother. You know, they both kind of started their new lives in the 70s. You know, they both had this kind of turbulent period in the 80s where they're trying to figure themselves out. In 1993, Marvin redesigned the publication to be the lifestyle glossy magazine that it is today, just about the time Napa was hitting its stride. 
Right. And, you know, now we're basically the reference point, just like Napa has become the reference point for American wine, where it's like, and you, you know, your father was like Marvin, a pioneer, taking on a new challenge, really didn't know what he was doing, but had the talent and the hard work ethic to succeed. And then you and I are just trying to, you know, keep the wheels on the wagon. We're trying to hang on. I'm with, that's a great, man, Mr. Parallel today. That's so true. Uh, I never thought about that, the spectator's history, because I do know this. It's, I, was, cause I was obviously thinking about our time together today and over the last few days and thinking about the spectator. And it's like, you know, you, you nailed it. I remember when he made that move to the lifestyle thing. And I think a lot of people are like, oh, what's going on? It's not going to be about wine. He's doing food. He's doing this. And, you know, and that was brilliant because at the time, you, you, have, you know, you got to keep changing. You got to keep moving. And I was, that's one of my questions to you. What, how did he do it? Because, you know, 30 or 40 years in, your guys are still at the top of your game. And it's not easy. I mean, you've got... The electronic thing, you know, media is, everybody says that, you know, media is coming, you know, the print media is coming to an end. And um, what's the key? What, what, what do you, what's, what's Marvin's secret? What's your secret? How do you do it? A million questions here. Well, I'm the third editor of uh, the magazine, and now Jeffrey Lindemuth is following me. So I think we can say that it's not the editor that has driven Wine Spectator to become what it is. It really is Marvin and his vision. And I don't think, really in all honesty, he could say that in 1979, when he took the mag magazine over, that it was going to be this. I don't think, you have to live the life and tackle each challenge as it comes and each opportunity as it comes. But, you know, trying to be open to the reader. What does the reader want? That is really what we've done. You know, where people sometimes think of it as a trade publication, and we have very close relationships with the trade. We love the people, but we do it for the reader, and the reader rewards us by buying the publication. And, you know, not to brag too much, but we figure that our paid circulation is greater than the paid circulation of every other wine publication in the world put together. If you take the magazine and the website, the website is like number two. So it's all about the reader. Yeah, and you know, you as a wine as winemakers have to make the same calculation. Am I going to, you know, just make wine that I want to drink, or do I want to make a wine that many people want to drink? Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, well, it's it's called sustainable. It's being sustainable yeah. means staying in business, and so you have to pay attention to that. And Marvin has had a very good insight into what the what the audience wants. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, we've been able to gather the resources and the expertise and the experience to deliver it. It's been an amazing run and continues. So, so you're in London, coming back to you, you're in London for a while, you're a year or two, and then how'd you get back to New York? Well, Marvin was growing his business and he had moved into bigger offices and he wanted a wine spectator person in the office. And, you know, there was the San Francisco staff, and none of them wanted to leave California. <laughs> and then there was me and Suckling in London, and he didn't want to leave Europe. And I said, well, if you're going to work for the Sun King, you might as well move to Versailles. <laughs> right. <laughs> I had lived in New York and liked it, so I said, yeah, we'll go back. And so there was a few years there, 89 to 93, when I was the only wine spectator person there. And you know, Marvin didn't really 
pay me any attention. <laughs> I just was sitting in a little cubicle, doing my phone calls, trying to make myself useful. And uh, every now and then I'd see the guys in California and I'd think, wow, they're having fun out there. They're tasting wine. They're visiting wineries. You know, they're putting a magazine together. I'm just sitting here in New York calling people. In 93, he, he moved everybody to New York, like it or not. So okay. then it was a bigger, it was a happier group. And we started tasting in New York. And uh, that was really thanks to Bruce Sanderson, who we hired from the Burgundy Wine Company. Uh, he set up our whole tasting program. And okay. that has grown over the time. And the 80s, the 90s were a really good time for wine and business. Oh, it was, yeah. It was great for everybody. We were talking about that the other day. Um, it's a funny story. We came across somebody, somebody grabbed something out of a file and it's like, oh my God, we, Hillside Select, in one year we raised the price from $60 a bottle to $85 a bottle, like between the 94 and 95 vintage. I'm mm -hmm. like going, $25 in one year? What were we thinking? But it happened, we did it, and... The wines were flying out the door. You, the, the 90s, it, we, it wasn't just Schaefer. We were, the whole industry was just was yeah. just popping. It's incredible. And, you know, and public, publishing, too. So we had a really nice run. And then in 99, you know, when all the internet thing blew up, uh, there was a company that wanted a wine editor for their internet alcohol business. And uh, the managing editor at the time, Jim Gordon, jumped ship. So that's when you took over. Yeah. So, I mean, again, as I said, Marvin didn't really know who I was. Uh, <laughs> but I wrote him a letter and I said, you know what? I can do this job and I want this job and I think you should consider me. Wow. So he sat on it for a while. There were other people that were way ahead of me on the, in, in his estimation. Mm -hmm. But uh, for some reason, he decided to take a gamble. Well, it, I think and, it paid off, my friend. Well, it certainly paid off for me. I mean, I never, by this point, in 93, my book was published, Village in the Vineyards. And uh, let us say it was not a big success. I mean, it got respectful reviews, but it didn't even earn back its advance. So I'm thinking, you know what, I'm probably not going to quit this job and go write another book. Uh, because that was hard work. Mm -hmm. And by that point, I'd fallen in love with Wine Spectator. So I was ready to make a commitment. And if you, I mean, thinking about what, my past, the idea that I would be at one company for 33 years, like my father, you got to be kidding me. Yeah, that was, that's not you from what I heard today. <laughs> <laughs> but it turned out to be me. Wow. So, and so grateful for the opportunity and the continuity. So how'd that change your whole role at Spectator? Because before you're kind of just one of the gang and doing your thing and, and now you're executive editor. So how's that change? Well, it just, I, I thought, mean, how hard can it be? Well, in the first six months I got shingles. Oh. <laughs> and it was hard. Yeah. It was, it was hard from a number of reasons, points of view. First of all, my relationships changed with everybody. Right. Uh, you know, instead of being the colleague, I was the boss. And also managing people. That is hard work. Yeah. I mean, people are great. And if you can bring good things out of them, it's such an incredible sense of satisfaction for you and for them and for the business. But, you know, it doesn't always go that smoothly. And then I really did not understand what it meant to be 
number two to Marvin. It, it, it was much more tumultuous and uh, difficult and, and challenging than I imagined, but also so much more rewarding. To be close to the guy and understand his decision-making process, his vision, and then try to turn that into reality, that has just been fun. But I have to say that, for me, the best part of the whole thing has been being part of the wine community. Hmm. What an amazing world we live in, Doug. You know, I, I interviewed architects uh, when I was writing about architecture. You know, I was in the restaurant business. I was in academia. As a group of people, none of them hold a candle to the diversity, <laughs> the passion, the skill, the, the entrepreneurship of the wine industry. It's just, it's, there's no question. I would agree with that. I mean, I look at my fellow vintners. We're all, of, everybody's, everybody's so different. Um, in so many ways, but also there's that common thread, the ones who've been doing this a long time, even a short time, of passion, the passion to create this product, to grow these grapes, to make the best wines you can year in, year out. I mean, that's just, it's just a given. I don't see a lot of these folks very much, but when you do, it's just, everybody's humming. They're just going after it, so. Um, well, that's been one of the great things of the wine experience. At the wine experience, we introduced Christian Moex of Petrus with Robert Druin from Burgundy. <laughs> they had never met. <laughs> we, have, <laughs> we have brought so many great people together. And then, you know, the attendees, the loyal attendees who have been coming for 20 years and now bringing their adult children. I mean, I've learned more from them than they've learned from me, these passionate collectors, drinkers, people in the world i'm with you the adult so, the adult children i've been noticing that the last few years it's like well here's my son or my daughter it's like wait a minute <laughs> where'd you come yeah. from and they're like <laughs> and the kids are like oh schaefer you know dad always pops the hillside at christmas blah 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 bomb and off they go it's pretty cool yeah yeah it's so great to be able to be a part of this world has just been a, a great gift it is when did the wine experience start up were you part of that yeah, you had to be probably not at the beginning. Okay. It started, there, that's another complicated history. That, so in 1981, Robert Mondavi created what he called the California Wine Experience in San Francisco at one of those great hotels. And the same year, Marvin had the first Grand Award Banquet because the first class of Grand Award winning restaurants in New York City at Windows on the World. Two separate events. The Windows on the World, the Grand Award Banquet, was sold out, huge success. Uh, the wine experience in California was apparently a total failure. They just couldn't get it together, and they called Marvin. They said, we need your help. So he took it over huh. and turned it into a charity event and combined the two so that we had the wine experience with the tastings and the seminars plus the Grand Award Banquet to honor the restaurants. And, uh, you know, since then, it's raised $20 million for charity. Wow. It's incredible. And we've had James Brown twice as the music. <laughs> we had a vertical tasting of Schaefer, a vertical tasting of Lafitte, a, you know, the greatest wines of the world. And um, it's just been, oh, there's nothing like it. I got to tell you, you know, 
it's it's one of the highlights of our year for, for sure because you know we we do a lot of traveling and sales and events and we just love it and i've got you know i was on a chardonnay panel one time with jim lobby and six other people and I ran in the lobby, in the in the lobby, he goes, Schaefer, I go, yeah, Jim. He goes, you ready? I go, yeah. He goes, you got any, you go, he goes, so you're going to be funny. I said, well, I got a couple jokes. He goes, good. I go, why? He goes, well, I just met two of the other panelists. I'm worried. <laughs> so, so I think it was like, okay, I got this one. And then uh, we did that vertical. What was it like presenting Re- Relentless as one of Well, that's what I was getting to that. So I did the vertical in Chicago with Dad and Elias. That was amazing. And I, you know, I've been in front of lots of crowds, but I got to tell you, Tom, when I got up there and sat down and looked at a thousand people, it's like, oh man, this is, this is, this is serious <laughs> and uh that was a kick but then wine of the year was was the best uh, 2008 relentless by the way thank you guys again for that it was quite an honor but it was great we um i had my whole family back all my kids in-laws um i got to i had the to be on the paneling got to speak and uh you know recognize my dad sitting right there in the front row which was uh, a magical moment i'll never forget yeah. and then uh and the next night or that night at the banquet you know he was able to receive the the award from uh from jim which was great and being part of that so it was you know i'll never yeah. forget it it was so it's one of the most special things that ever happened to us so pretty cool great memories and I was happy that, you know, a Napa wine, but not a Cabernet, got the award. I think that was, I love the curveball. Yeah, yeah. I was pretty surprised because, you know, you think, well, Hillside Select, of course, blah, blah, Relentless. It's like, yeah, we love it, but cool. So, yeah, you know, it's, we've had a lot of fun with that one. So good well, memories. We've always been willing to think outside the box. And I think that is what the wine world needs. You know, it needs faithfulness to tradition, yes, but it also needs willingness to take a risk. Yeah, yeah definitely. I had a question for you because you've been there at the Spectator when all this stuff, all the online internet, the whole media world shifted, serious shift, you know, to online and presence, which you guys have done. How did you? What was that like in your shoes? I mean, that thing, it's all of a sudden it's there, it's happening. What was the thought process with you guys and how to deal with the whole shift in media, in print media? Well, I would say there's three aspects that changed and needed to be addressed. Um, First was the technology. You know, how do we put this up there, get this out there, find our audience? And it was not evident in the mid-90s when we launched and it's been a challenge ever since because it does. it's not like the printing presses. Everything is changing all the time. So to keep up with the technology has been, I don't, I don't even know anything about it. I'm just happy when it works. <laughs> the second thing has been the revenue model, how to make a business out of it. Um, that has been a huge challenge. Marvin was very early in erecting a paywall. Uh, and when we saw the New York Times and these other major publications giving away their content for free, we said, no, 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 you're making a huge mistake. Hmm. And ultimately, they agreed that it was a huge mistake. And now they're trying to you know, claw back the subscribers. But we've always had paying subscribers. And uh, you know, so we've managed to make a business out of it. And then finally, you know, it's the content. I mean, ultimately, I think... 
the delivery system and the business model are secondary to the ability to find and hold an audience. And that's what we did with the print publication, and that's what we had to do with the digital online part, too. And I think, you know, it's working. Yeah. And it's basically, you know, it's integrity, it's accuracy, it's fairness, it's interesting, being interesting and lively, and listening to the reader and seeing what they want. So right. our, our website has a quite a different character from the print publication. It's more reverent. It's uh, it's kind of shorter, faster, funnier, mm-hmm. um, but it's still built on blind tastings, expertise, fair reporting, and listening to the reader. Another question I have is, how do you maintain, you know, the, your core readers you've had forever, and also attract the new kids, the young kids? And uh, this is almost unnatural, isn't it? The, the, we feel like the website is our bridge right. for the younger generation. I mean, I, there have been publications, venerable legacy publications, that tried to change their DNA to attract a different, younger, hipper demographic. I think most famously of Gourmet magazine. Mm-hmm. Uh, and utterly failed because they lost their older readers without replacing them with younger readers. Very risky to do that. I think, you know, we have our character. And even though our average age of our print readers 50-ish, you know, when the current 20-somethings have careers and disposable income and our interest, you know, they'll come to us. In the meantime, we're going to give them the kinds of information they're looking for about celebrities and pop wines and natural wines and you know that kind of thing in, mm-hmm. on the website now you guys have done a great job with that and uh, and how do you you've mentioned more than once about giving the customers what they want how do you know what they want is are they writing letters to you guys do you do surveys do you um because that's that's a challenge for us here yeah what who's my customer what do they want i mean we're always you know striving to find that answer so partly it's Marvin. Marvin has an idea of he's the reader, you know, and what he likes, the readers will like. And in large case, he's he's true. I mean, he he sees where interest is flowing because he talks to a lot of people and he's in a lot of worlds. Also, on the website, at least, you know, you get immediate feedback. You can track what people are clicking on. So. You know, if they click a thousand times on one story and ten times on the other, it's like, well, okay, that's what they want. And then for print, it's really more about subscriptions. You know, how is your renewal rate? Our renewal rate is way, way above the industry average. People just don't stop. And they don't even throw it away. I don't know if you've been in people's houses. I mean, there's they have stacks of wine spectator. It's, it's just so amazing to me. I have seen them. You know, they'll, they'll dig out an article from 20 years ago, you know, that, that speaks to an interest they have or a travel story that we did five years ago and they always wanted to go to Sicily and now they've got their list of addresses. So you, you have to have a touch for it. And, you know, you guys clearly have a touch for it and Marvin has a touch for it. Right. Now, it's, now you guys have done a great job with it. Um, I had another question because I think 
not just myself, but I think a lot of people listening, since a big part of the wine spectator is the wine reviews and critiques, um, and you guys, you're tasting all the time and the reviews. How do you, how's it, how's it work? How's it set up? What's the philosophy? You've got different people doing different things. Do you taste as a group? Um, how do you avoid burnout? All those types of things. How's, what's the, the backstory on the whole tasting program? So at one wine experience, Marvin decided to have a blind tasting with the editors. <laughs> okay. And each editor had to pick a wine that nobody else knew. And we were all sitting up there on the panel. And um, before we began the tasting, I said to Marvin, you know, why don't you just ask Bruce, who was the tasting director at the time, how we do this? so that people will have a sense of, you know, what's going on. So Marvin said, sure, that sounds like a good idea. And he said, Bruce, thousand people out there, how, how <laughs> yeah. do we taste wines? How do, what's, our, what's our methodology and our philosophy? And Bruce says, well, you know, we use the 100-point scale, and you know we do all blind tasting. So what we do is uh, we put on our blindfolds, and we have this dartboard. And the dartboard has the 70s on the outside, 80s, 90s, and 100 is the bullseye. And we throw darts, and wherever it lands, that's the score. <laughs> he did. Marvin. He said that in front of a thousand <laughs> people. Marvin oh, went ballistic. Oh, he, the look on his face was priceless. Oh, God, way to go, Bruce. Awesome. <laughs> but I, I mean, I really have to say that I think our tasting methodology, which we've evolved over the years, is the most professional in the business. The, the whole goal is to give each wine an equal and fair chance to show its best. And the whole methodology is aimed at winding, getting to that point. Each editor has tasting beats that they're responsible for because we think experience is key to evaluation. So Bruce has been tasting Burgundy for 20 years. I've been tasting Spain for 20 years. You know, occasionally there's a shift, like uh, James Molesworth has just taken over Cabernet from Jim Lauby, but he had a lot of experience drinking Cabernet, plus he was the Bordeaux reviewer. So it's not like we threw him into a place where he couldn't swim. Then we give each taster a budget for their regions. How many wines can he taste? Because, you know, we're only 10 tasters, and we just don't have that many resources to taste every wine in the world. Right. So I get a budget, say, 750 wines for Spain. So then I have to decide, okay, which ones? So we, let, we, we ask the producers and their importers to submit requests of wines that they would like us to review. Then we look through the requests. We see, what is the track record of this wine? How much does it cost? How much is made? What's its distribution? And we try to pick the wines to review that we think are most interesting to our readers and most available. I mean, there, there's nothing like giving a 97-point review to a wine where there's 30 cases for the U.S. That's a tough one. <laughs> you know, so yeah. that just makes more enemies than friends. Right. So we try to shape the, the, the group of wines that we review in an intelligent way. The wineries send in the wines for the most part. We do purchase wines if they're important enough. I mean, if you decided, for example, you didn't want us to review Hillside Select, well, we would say, well, our readers want to know what we think of Hillside Select, so we would go out and buy it. Okay. But mostly people don't do that because they want to make sure that the samples we get are good samples. Sure. That they didn't go through some shipping, retail, whatever. So then we have a whole crew of tasting coordinators who receive the samples, 
unpack the boxes, check the wines into our computers, and set them up in tasting flights, flights that make sense. So I might do 15 Riojas, or I might do 15 Albarinas. Molesworth might do 15 wines from Oakville, or 15 wines from Sonoma. We say that the flights can't be more than 25 wines, and no taster can do more than two flights in a day. Because we don't, it's tiring. I mean, you do it. You yeah. know, if you're trying to, if you're paying attention, you're really trying to analyze the wine. It's not just sip and scribble. No, it's tough. Those are good parameters. I like that. It's good to hear. And then, of course, all the wines are blind. Right. They're all tasted in our own locations. You know, we control the temperature, the lighting, the stemware, uh, the odors in the room. Everything is optimal and everything is the same for every wine to the point of getting that fair and equal opportunity. So I'll taste my 18 Riojas, and uh, then when I'm done, I push the bags off button on the computer, and I finally can see what I'm tasting. All, All I know beforehand is the vintage and the appellation, and if it's appropriate, the grape variety. So then I see what I've got. And each flight begins with a benchmark, a previously scored wine we taste non-blind just to kind of get ourselves calibrated. Smart. I like that. And within each wine is a ringer, a previously reviewed wine, so that we can match our current score with our previous review. See, you know, are we, is it, are we on target? That's a cool thing. I didn't know that. That's a great idea. So I would say, you know, if I'm right on on my ringer and there's no flawed bottles, uh, I still will probably choose one or two wines to retaste because they scored much higher than their track record or much lower than their track record or it just didn't make sense. So I'll say, no, I'm going to taste the second bottle of that wine and it'll go back into another flight. And then, you know, there you have it. The reviews are, yeah. are made public and um, the, our reader gets the review first. We never tell the producer the score or the you know, or the review before it's a public knowledge. And uh, there we go. Then if, you know, if when it gets to 97, it flies off the shelf. <laughs> now you guys have a lot of influence. So it's great. Thank you for sharing that with us because it's really good to hear because it is important. And that 97 can, you know, make or break it. And uh, it's good to hear that you guys take it very seriously and have those controls weaved into the process um, to make it as objective as possible. So appreciate it. To me, it's a, it's a you know, I, I don't feel like I'm the judge and the wine is the defendant in the dock. I feel like it's a dialogue. I'm trying to learn from the wine what it has to say. And, you know, I'm applying my experience, everything that I've learned over the years to my interpretation. And... The fact that it's blind makes it so that I, I'm only interpreting what's actually in the glass. And, you know, that is a fascinating process. And I, I don't claim that I always get it right. There's times when I think, you know what? I just missed that. Mm-hmm. It, it, and I, I'm going to give it another shot. And that's, you know, why not? We're not. It, nobody gets it right every time. Big picture question. You've been doing this like myself for 20 or 30 years plus. Um, in the last 20 plus years, biggest changes you've seen in the industry and, and what stayed the same? 
Any thoughts? I think that a couple of things have happened. One is we've moved away from a period of uh, what I call processed wines. Just like with foods, uh, there was a period in the 60s, 70s where industrialized processes kind of edged into the vineyard and the cellar. And that was a change from historical wine growing and not a good one. And I think that wineries have realized that and now are getting back to a much more respectful position towards the land, the vineyard, the grapes, and the winemaking. So there's more transparency, there's more authenticity, uh, and there's more interest in the wines that result. And I think that's been a huge positive change. Also, I would say that the wine world has just exploded. I mean, I, when I when I went to Chile in 1993, there was five wineries, maybe, you know, using old redwood Rowley tanks. I mean, it, you know, I mean, there wasn't there was no Argentina, there was no New Zealand, there was no. I mean, most of Spain was still undeveloped. It, half of California didn't even exist. So. We are living in a bounteous age of wine. Just so great. Oh, I'd agree. I would totally agree with that. That's really And funny. I would say the third thing that I really see is that wine has become part of American culture. It's no longer the snobby thing that the rich person or the person who went to Europe, you know, affects as a way of showing their status. Um, the hip hop stars have wine. The NBA, the NFL guys have wine. The movie stars have wine. Wine's on the table. It's in the supermarkets. You know, it's part of our lives in many different ways, but in an integrated way that I think is, is fantastic. As a culture, it should be that way. And mm-hmm. I'm so happy to see that. Oh, me happen. too. Yeah. And not just because I'm in the business, but just because I think it's a really good thing. Because there's variety and there's texture and there's stories and there's um, it's just more there's more <laughs> culture's the wrong word to use, but just more. Uh, again, like you said, it's not just a processed thing, like you know, um, making vodka or something like that. Well, we have to eat and drink, and uh, you know, let's not just make it a machine thing where we fuel our needs. Let's make an an aesthetic thing and a philosophical thing where we enjoy and ex- learn from the things we eat and drink. Mm-hmm. Wine, there's nothing like wine as a vehicle for complex enjoyment and and great exploration. So that's that's something that stayed the same. We all need to eat and drink, and that will continue. <laughs> I got a crazy question for you. What's something that you think or you wish consumers knew? or understood about wineries and winemakers and even the wine press that you don't think they might know? I think to really understand that it's an agricultural product for the most part. I mean, yes, there are still mass-produced kind of industrial wines, but the wines that we care about, the wines that you make, the wines that our readers are drinking, they are the products of the earth. And you can't expect uniformity. You can't expect that each year to be the same. You wouldn't, shouldn't want it to be uniform or the same. You should revel 
in the dis- differences and the quote unquote imperfections and the and just kind of you know don't think of it as a as something manufactured and perfectible think of it as something agricultural and and real i totally agree in fact sometimes sometimes we'll pop a wine home and it's like it's it's just not working there's nothing wrong with it it's fine mm-hmm. But it's just not working. Maybe like it's not working with whatever we're eating, whether that's a, mm-hmm. that's not a positive or negative. But it's almost more fun to try to dissect what's going on. Why isn't this working on my palate? You know, because mm-hmm. I've had this wine before, a different setting. It was like it tasted fine. Why is it happening like this now? I love doing that. I just It's almost like I look for the, the mismatches more than the matches. People ask me, you know, well, what's, what's the best wine you ever drank? What's your favorite wine? Tom, what's your favorite wine of all time? I want to hear it. (laughs) Well, you know, there's no answer because it's all a matter of the moment and the context. And so many bottles have been perfect in their moment, but would not have been even memorable outside of that moment. And that's, you know, thank God for every moment that we have, uh, that those memories can be made. Yeah, yeah. And here's a here's an important one. What's what's something you wish vintners like me understood about the wine press? I mean, we're just glad that you do your job as well as you do, and we hope that you know you recognize that we're doing our job as best we can, and that we all need to support each other. We help you get your message across. You give us access to a world that's important to us. If mm-hmm. we can think of ourselves as partners more than adversaries. I mean, not in the sense that I'm going to scratch your back so you'll scratch mine, but in the sense that our goals are the same. We're trying to educate people about this beverage that we love. We're trying to do it to the best of our abilities. You know, let's help each other achieve a goal that's good for everybody. Well, and I think that's I think that's really happened, you know, over the last eight to ten years. Where I think before that there it was more adversarial, um, unfortunately. And I think we've all gotten it. You know, and just by the way, just like the wine experience, it's time to spend with each other, like you and me, chit chatting over something, and we can agree friendly. We can friendly agree to disagree on whatever, even one of my wines, and that's fine. And I've. What I love about The Spectator, it's, it's fun to read the scores and all that, but I just love the articles because they're so in-depth, and all of a sudden I'm reading about some region, and a wine region in the world I don't know about, I've never been to, and all of a sudden I'm getting the backstory because you guys do a really great job with that, so my compliments, because all of a sudden I'm done with the article, and it's like, wow, I kind of I get that now. I get what Barolo is all about. I want to go there. You know, I want to go see all that, that whole, that whole area and those wines. So that's, I think that's helped a lot because it's, um, it's the scores and reviews we talked about, but that's not the, to me, that's not the focus. I don't think it is for most of your consumers, consumers. I could be wrong, but I think that's the, the education they get from the spectator. Well, you know, Doug, you hit a, a point that's very important for us. Marvin always says, we're not in the publishing business, we're in the education business. And that's really... <laughs> that, 
Oh, you're going to love this. That's what my father used to say. Mm. <laughs> no, we would, oh, I don't mean to, you know, yeah. jump jump in here, but we did a parallel with Marvin and you and Dad yeah. and me. But a lot of our marketing materials, Dad used to, he was into guerrilla marketing. And uh, instead of coming out with something saying how wonderful our Cabernet is, it's like, hey, let's uh, let's do an educational piece. Let's, let's do a piece on what's it like to farm a hillside vineyard, mm. you know. And just and do an in-depth piece. We produced yeah. a few of them, and uh, it was great. It was a great way to get your name out without tooting your own horn. So, well, even this podcast, Doug. I mean, I don't see what the commercial value for it, you is. <laughs> but you're doing no. a great job educating people. You know about different. I, I, the winemakers you have on all have interesting things to say. It's been so much fun, and it. Um, yeah, we didn't really do it for. You know, we just said let's let's do something new, kind of like uh, you guys going online and a, a new format of way of doing it. But what's happened is, I've had so much fun, and I've learned so much. Look, look what I've learned about you today. You know, Mister Mister, you know, switch here, switch there, and then up to the thirty-year gig. I mean, it's fun. So um, we'll keep doing it on my end. Well, if I can leave your readers, your listeners, with one piece of advice, it would be that. Uh, what might look like a detour could turn out to be the exact change in direction that you needed in your life. That every challenge is an opportunity and you just gotta go for it. I think we'll take that and run with it. And uh, words, uh, words to live by. Don't let me forget that, Tom. If you okay. think in the future as things pop up in both our lives. So, Mr. Matthews, thank you so much for uh, spending the time with us and all your stories and the Wine Spectator and everything else. What's what's happening with you? You're stepping down as executive editor, but you're st- are you still going to be involved? Is that yes. my understanding? With the yeah, I, I'm ready to give up the daily pressure of the of the magazine and the website. Uh, and Jeff is going to do a great job bringing new energy and new ideas. But I could never abandon the wine community or Marvin. I mean, they're both just too important to me. So he's agreed to let me stay on as an editorial advisor. Uh, My primary responsibility will be helping to organize and plan this year's wine experience, which will be our 40th wine experience uh, and the 45th anniversary of the magazine's founding. So we're planning on a huge party and it's going to be a great Great. event. And we expect you to be there. Bell's on your sheets. I will be there dancing. (laughs) All right. All right. Thanks, Tom. Tom, thanks again for your time, man. Be good. We'll see you soon. Okay. Bye. All right, thanks. Bye-bye. It was great talking with Tom and seeing the world of wine through his eyes. What a story. I'm really glad he was able to join us today. He opened my eyes to a lot of different ideas. When things get back to some kind of normal, if you love wine, you really should try to get to one of the Wine Spectator's wine experiences. They're a lot of fun, and you get the chance to try the best wines of the world. If you enjoy the taste, please rate and review us on iTunes, which helps other people find the podcast. And remember, if you have any questions for our upcoming episode of Listener Questions, please send them to podcast at schaefervineyards.com. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time.